Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's quote is from Kristen Linklater, the famous voice coach who just passed away a week or two ago. She says in her book, Freeing the Natural Voice, two bullet points. She says the following two maxims should underlie all work on the voice. One, blocked emotions are the fundamental obstacle to a free voice. And two, muddy thinking is the fundamental obstacle to clear articulation. Welcome to Permission to Speak, the podcast about how we talk and how we get ourselves heard with me, Samara Bay. Today's guest is Dr. Anne Charity Hudley a linguist and a scholar who teaches at University of California, Santa Barbara. Now, some linguists spend their entire careers tracking dying languages on remote mountains, and God bless, someone should do it, glad they do. But <laughs> but Anne, she told me to call her Anne, Anne focuses on how the ways each of us communicates, shapes and forms society, and how society shapes and forms the way each of us communicates, with a special emphasis on the Black experience in America, what it is to grow up with different dialects for different scenarios, and an inherent sense of hierarchy from good English, quote unquote, at the top down, even though good English is arbitrary, which we talk about here, and how this hierarchy is both personal and systemic, when it comes to hiring practices and admissions and what she calls our culture's, quote, gatekeeping ideals. I wanted to have Anne on because, you know, this is part of the national conversation that we have to have if we are serious about doing anti-racist work. There's a chance that we all, all have biases around accents of African-American English. Whether you are a speaker of it yourself and you have some 
you know, internalized shit that Anne has done studies to track and talks about in our conversation, starting with four and five-year-old black kids all around the U.S. Or you're a listener of African-American English making snap judgments that you may not even notice. This is the episode for noticing and for thinking big about why exactly we love listening to Michelle Obama and Oprah and what to make of our own idiolects, which is the very fancy word for how each of us sounds different from every single other person on earth and how we got that way. Also, I have to say, if you're a Californian, go to the show notes, read up on ACA 5. It's an amendment to the California Constitution that is going to be on the ballot this November and is wildly important to vote yes on. This is Dr. Ann Charity Hudley. you are the first linguist on, there's a little bit of a discussion that needs to happen of like literally what is linguistics. Yes. Would you talk to me about who gravitates towards linguistics? Yeah. So what is linguistics is something that I think about a lot because I've spent a lot of my life teaching first-year students. And if you teach first-year students, linguistics in particular is often something they've never heard of. Yep. And then you got to make it sound interesting and cool. So one of the ways that I really like to think about what is linguistics is thinking about it as the study of the faculty of the mind. So the ability of the mind to understand and process language in all of its forms. So that's communication, expression, right? Just part of what it means to be a human through spoken forms, written forms, sign forms, gesture, the body, messaging, signaling. That whole thing kind of encompasses What we think about is the study of cognitive linguistics, traditional um, kind of the Chomskyan tradition of generative linguistics, right? Focusing on what does it mean to know a language Mm. on into modern ideas about language and and digital uh, expression and the internet, right? So like the linguistics of things as you kind of think about it. Then along with that, and equally important, I think to me, my interests have lied in the second part, is also language as a social institution. So the ways that we then take that faculty of the mind and organize it along individual and community and societal kind of aspects, such that they reflect our communities and they reflect ourselves as an individual, the ways we communicate. But they also, because language is so central to everything we do and communication is really how we form those social organizations, it's looking at how they inform each other. How is a society reflected through the way it communicates? But how do modes of communication also shape and form a society? Mm. So that's kind of how I think about linguistics. And the coolest part of what's going on right now is the social cognitive overlap. How do we then think about the ways that we know, um, just know anything as human beings? Tell us, like, how did you find linguistics? How did it feel like that was what you were going to dedicate your life to? (laughs) (laughs) So when I was young, I realized that I picked up language and language varieties pretty quickly. So I was more like into singing and acting and performing. And then I was really fortunate to go to an independent school, St. Catharines in Richmond, Virginia, that offered a lot of languages as just part of the culture of educating bright and, um, you know, international focused Southern women. (laughs) That was like Mm. what they did at the time. Now it's people. (laughs) 
Um, so then I was there and I was fortunate enough to have a teacher there who was really more of a professor. He had a PhD in Semitic philology. So the study of like Semitic languages uh-huh. um, from Harvard. And I just really like got into it and decided that I really, I was interested in the languages, like studying languages was something I love, but I was interested in the way languages worked. And I didn't even have a word for it outside of philology, which is a more traditional way of doing that. And so one day I went into an independent bookstore in downtown Richmond and I found this book called How Languages Work. Basically, the title was like the Encyclopedia of Language by David Crystal. Of course, David Crystal. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. So like my teacher was amazing and was totally supportive, but he was like more pushing me in towards the philological way of thinking about it. What does philological actually mean? The study is of the sounds and like how it relates to literature Uh and understanding like the patterns. Uh But I think the part that was in the how language works for me was tying that to today's culture. And then the, you know, back in the 90s, like really when neuroscience was taking off. So I realized like my interest was in that science culture overlap. Well, which is so interesting because it feels like that's so where you are today. It was amazing because I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I was like, I don't care what y'all call it, right? Because people did go mm-hmm. back and forth. Oh, you should go into neuroscience. You should go into reading education. You should go into linguistics. You should go into literacy studies. I was like, I don't care what we call it, but here's this piece that's interesting to me. And the practicality, because I didn't really care which discipline, then I was able to keep the practicality because <laughs> I just used what I needed to. You know, I, like I went a different path because honestly, to be fair, I did not, I went to Princeton undergrad that has a pretty good linguistics department and I did not know it. Ah, huh, yeah. You know, I didn't know when I was 20 that I was going to end up in this realm. Uh, bummer. But, um, <laughs> you know, but I've tried to sort of like, you know, follow pop linguistics since then to sort of fill in the gaps. But equally, you know, my in was like, getting an MFA in acting and wanting to do regional Shakespeare. But nonetheless, since I was 14 and had a I had a university-level Shakespeare teacher explain to me how iambic pentameter works and how that's sort of the heartbeat of language, I've been in the, you know, different way in, but same thing of like how we talk is so revelatory of what is going on with us emotionally. And we can sort of reverse engineer how humans are and think based on what's coming out of their mouth to some extent. Yeah. And think about who we want to be as humans, right? It's allowing us to expand ideas of the human imagination, the human possibility. And the more that we attune to language and communication about that, I think it has the ability to not just change who we are, but change society for the better. So this is interesting because part of the um, interesting and complicated aspect of talking about language and how we talk is this idea that... um, I guess what I want to know how much you think of how we talk is fixed versus always malleable and changing. Well, I think that, you know, there is, it's really a, an open question still because we know that it's hard to change the way that you speak without some type of effort is the way that I like to describe it. All right. So language occurs naturally in context. So you're learning from your first your, your family and then whoever your caregivers are and your friends And even that changes. So young babies, we know when they're babbling, they're at first, it's like all the sounds of the world. But even by like six months, they're already restricting their babble to the sounds of the languages of the people who are caring for them. Yeah. So that's really early. So if you look at something like that, you're saying, look, your sound inventory is restricted pretty early. But if it, we also know that if other, like other languages, other people come around them, 
children are very adept at then picking up other sounds, other languages. And that really goes on through what we call kind of the critical period through about 13, you know, pretty naturally, if the conditions are right, kids can learn language. But we also have much better evidence these days about how to really effectively teach languages in school environments and bilingual education and dual language education that really extends people's ability to learn language, you know, for a lot later. We also know that if conditions are right for older people, if they are in multilingual, multicultural environments where the language is valued, they're allowed to make mistakes as they learn and their learning is celebrated, that language learning can go on, you know, much later and even later in life. And on an individual level, this idea of an idiolect mm-hmm. that all of us, I mean, I'm always saying, because especially because I came up working with actors, I'm always saying that our voice reflects our life experience. Yes. And then, you know, this word idiolect seems to suggest that that's, that every individual sounds different from every other individual because of all the, what you said, all the picking up, all this, all the, you know. And I think those of us who are interested in, in performance or voice, singing, acting, and linguistics, that idiolect as a study of an idiolect is so important. So I actually did my master's thesis on the idiolect of Bessie Smith, who was a blues singer. Mm-hmm. And really tracing um, her performance styles, her singing styles, as well as her speech styles over the course of her career. So one of the things we can really see in an idiolect is how a person changes in both the short term and the long term But the ways that they communicate differently to different people based on who the audience or who they're speaking or communicating with is, but also how performance theory comes in, right? So I can intentionally change things about the way that I'm singing and I'm doing based on who's who's coaching me, (laughs) who is hiring me, right? Those types of things that, that really help us see that we actually acquire language naturally, but there's a lot we can do to change and manipulate both how we sound and how we sound in different situations. And I think that's really important as we kind of think about how we co-construct like our identities, right? Is that it's not all just natural and what goes in comes out, input in or input out models. But humans actually have a lot of command over the big aspects, like learning a language, but a huge command over the little aspects. And that even includes like who you're talking to and what you're saying and why. We talk about code switching a lot on this Mm -hmm. podcast. And I'm always, you know interested in helping people who don't have any of this kind of background and aren't necessarily conscious of all the stuff that's going on about just how many different ways each of us responds to people and communicates with people based on the stimulus we're taking in on what's needed in that moment. And I think thinking about that in terms of what do we perceive as changing versus all the layers of what's actually changing. That's why to me, code switching is the the parts of it that we notice either the speaker or the listener or someone else who's overhearing. I do a lot in African-American culture about not just who you're speaking with, but who else is listening, Mm. (laughs) right? In terms of like that notion of being surveilled or being watched or listened to in different ways. Um, And I think what is so interesting is that for me, the cool thing about linguistics is I can analyze that layer that's perceptual, like the layer that I can hear how I sound different when I'm talking to you versus when I'm not doing a podcast. But there's a whole lot of other linguistic detail that it takes, um, you know, you can measure (laughs) that someone who's trained to listen for it or is thinking about different things can hear sound changing in progress over time that even the listeners don't recognize and even the speakers don't hear. (laughs) It's so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And like a pitch, I'm sure, also comes into play 
we're always, you know, we go up in pitch when we want to be unintimidating. And, you know, like there's so many little pitch turn, like how much of a pause we leave between speaking to people or if we overlap, I think is a really cool one. The amplitude or the, the loudness of our voice, I think is really something that we can all pay more attention to. And I know we all hear what we think of as an accent, right? So those kind of sound differences, but there's so much going on, even word choice. I'm real, myself, I've been always fascinated with which word we choose to use in a given moment, depending on who we're speaking to, to either kind of make ourselves more understood, sound more friendly, or sound more educated in a particular situation. Total. Well, and, and one of the one of the aspects of English that I, I hear is different from <laughs> a lot of languages is that we do have, you know, like four options for every word, or at yes. least two, you know, the Germanic yeah. and the Romantic. And then and then there's and then there's others. And then, you know, yeah, what gets chosen in the moment? How much is it yes. just about trying to be as clear as possible versus trying to, you know, perform some aspect of your status or your identity? Yeah. And I think that's what that performance is just for me is so big with the lexicon. As you watch people try to sort that out in real time, you can kind of see it happen depending on what people are talking about. So this ties in, though, with some of the more problematic aspects. You know, when I talk about this with actors, when I get hired for a TV show, what I'm hired to do is help, in my mind, they don't, producers don't talk in these terms, but in my mind, I am there to help, quote unquote, tell the story of these characters. So what are, is revealed by how they're sounding? But obviously, um, we can also make assumptions about people's story based on how they sound. So I'd love to talk about standard versus non-standard with lots of scare quotes around all those words. Yeah, can you talk to us about what, what this means and how you think of these concepts? Yeah, I think it is a continual social process that's happening again on this layer of either community or individual ideas about what sounds either correct in an educational or professional sense or acceptable in a more social sense. And I think it's a process that will be going on till the end of time. <laughs> but I think about what, what we really think about is, I call it standardized English, right? To really help people understand that it's a constant process, that you're, you're involved in yourself. You're making these choices as an individual, and your, your choices are also contributing to society. But I do think this idea of what, why we have this idea is really important. Um, as when religious groups and organizations and the churches and the synagogues and the mosques, right, and all the people who are in them and lead them still can really control both language and education. Mm. Um, you saw a real fixed sense of to know language and to understand it in a particular way was to be more like holy, right? This is a tradition we see, particularly in Judeo-Christian tradition. That then bled into schools when schools were still run by religious organizations, and so there's a sense is that the more perfect your language, the more you are able to read the Torah or the Bible in, or, or the Quran in particular language, it made you more holy, more learned, and therefore more closer to God. So the sense of what we're thinking about in terms of standardized is then that church interpretation. That interpretation mashed up with the rise of modern capitalism, <laughs> where in a sense with modern capitalism, you had to make very quick choices about who is going to be able to fully participate in that capitalist society and who would be excluded. And so we see that along, you know, racial lines, social class, gender, <laughs> every kind of geographic location. 
And one of the best ways to capture that is through language use. So privileging the language of the people who you wanted to privilege, usually white men, straight men, especially on the East Coast in the beginning, as linguistic standards. Um, And so when you got those two things going together, that's why people have such fixed ideas about what standard English is, even though we know that those narratives are false, right? It's just as false as believing that you would ever really fully be able to participate in a capitalist system if you already aren't wealthy. Hmm. And so that's the trick of the process, right? So you're always going towards something that is not real and that you can also never acquire fully. So (laughs) it's a lot. (laughs) So, I mean, the question is, you know, of course, how do we... um, continually change that. I'd love to talk about your experience with four and five-year-olds, actually, yes. if you don't mind. I, um, I read that you won the, the uh, 2019 Linguistics Society of America Award for Linguistics Language in the Public for your influence on the classroom experience of users of non-standard varieties of English. So here we are, going really early. Yeah. And to four and five-year-olds, what was that? What was interviewing them like, and what did you learn? So... It's so amazing because children are um, experts at language, but the thing that they're really expert at is language acquisition, learning language. And so what is really amazing with working with four and five-year-olds is you can see them actively trying to learn language, trying to figure out what's going on in a learning situation and use the cues to still develop their language skills in a way you just, adults do it, but just not as actively, not as rep quickly and not as necessarily, right? We already speak our language. You've already figured out some things about the world. And so I was really interested in how Black children in particular do this in a school setting. And what does it mean for their acquisition of both their language, but also their achievement in school, all with the mind of thinking about how is this socializing these kids to the world? Um, So the way that, the thing that I did that was a little different was really start to look at them, not just as speaking in one variety of the other, but their transitions, really using experimental methods, mostly sentence imitation, where you have a kid tell a story or say a sentence or a mix and have them repeat it back to you. So you can see how they process um, the difference between like what they would say naturally and what they really see as something that they are probably in a situation they, they need to learn in a school setting. And then using ethnographic methods to really look at that whole situation. Which kids were really struggling? How could you really see it? Not just in what they said, but through their whole body, their emotions. Which ones were really into it and saw it more as a game? And which other students really were stressed out by it and really had already a sense of how school was going to define whether or not they were a good or bad person, right? So along with those language pieces that we saw, we could really see like the cultural range and how Black children Um, We're trying to make sense of their world, their identity, but also what school was going to mean for them in the short and long term. So that was really important, not just for, you know, learning about the children, but why I was doing it is to share those experiences with the teachers and their educators, policymakers, people who design curriculum, so they can have a better insight on how school has an impact on Black students overall through those language and communication interchanges. I was really struck with, um, you wrote about this in Slate in 2014, and you said, um, many of them were worried that just talking to me would somehow cause them to be held back a grade if they did not do well in the conversations. You got it. And so that already showed that they were really aware of the vital 
difference in their language and the expectations of school. And they were already aware of the ramifications that it could have for them. And I would argue, I, I saw and continue to see that they could not figure a way out, right? So without the teachers knowing what was going on, they as smart language learners, the younger kids were already figuring out that they were in a situation that they could not win. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna come back and talk more. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I want to talk a little bit more about you because, you know, this conversation about four and five-year-olds acquiring language, I wonder how you think about your own voice story. Yeah, that's a good one. So I am was born to African-American parents who grew up in the segregated South. Um, my dad was from Virginia, outside of Richmond. My mother was from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And they decided that what they would do with their lives, basically, I don't know if y'all know this term is called, well, it used to be called race men, but it's like race people. So basically pick a topic and try to integrate something. So for them, it was medicine. For us as kids, it meant neighborhoods and it meant our school. (laughs) So um, for basically all of my life, I attended white elite private institutions are independent. So K through 12, and then Harvard undergrad, and then University of Pennsylvania. And then I did fellowships at Dartmouth and Yale. But I still lived in this neighborhood. What do you have, what do you have against Princeton? My brother <laughs> went there. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> it's actually clear cut. It's a clear cut answer. <laughs> so sorry, please keep going. So clear cut. That's hilarious. Because he was like, I told him I was on to you. He was so excited. Because he read about you in the alumni magazine. The oh, no way. Short, yeah. The oh, my God. It was like, I wanted a different school than my brother. Yeah. <laughs> that's no, yeah, that's, that's fair. Okay. I mean, and you're, that's how you think at 17, right? Like, I don't think I have to justify that any more than that. Um, but I was the community that we grew up in, which was was really where my grandmother was from, was mostly all white, but the communities next to it were all black. So 
We grew up in Verina, Virginia, in Eastern Henrico, which at the time at the time was mostly white. Now it's a lot of black people. But Richmond, the city, and then the surrounding more rural areas were black. So I was constantly hearing changes between language and with respect to race and geographic location, right? I could quickly hear the difference between city and country and the comments that were going back and forth, both across groups and within groups. And as a child, that really just fascinated me. I just could hear it. And sometimes I would make comments that other people like didn't seem to hear it the same, right? So I'd already noticing that it wasn't just me as a linguist, but that I had an ear for language. And then I realized I had an ear for music, right? For singing in particular, and how the singing styles kind of mimicked what I was hearing. Uh, And so that's really always informed me as a scholar is like this differences that are like really small. And then noticing in my own voice, I guess probably by the third grade that I sounded more like the kids in my school (laughs) just by default over time than I did my own community, even though I still like live there and, you know, participated fully in other social and cultural and family activities. And I was really interested then in why that happened, even though it wasn't like I was living an isolated existence. My parents were still Black doctors with Black patients and, you know, church was Black, Girl Scouts were Black. You know, it wasn't like I was like someone who moved off to some suburb and never saw people again, especially as I saw where I was living become more Black in real time, which was the point of them moving there. It wasn't to escape. It was Mm. to include. Mm. And so I was really interested in like, you know, people would say things would be more about just your disposition. Oh, you're trying to get away from Black people. And I was like, no, there's something else going on here that's not just me trying to get away from people. Right. It has to do with like how I'm being conditioned in school to be successful. And then I realized more about what people call code switching. It's like, oh, I could actually really switch. But for me, it's really primed by who I'm talking to. (laughs) So that really got, I guess, me on my path to focusing in linguistics and in, in my teaching, first at the College of William and Mary and then here at UC Santa Barbara, on teaching linguistics to large numbers of Black students to help them learn about language and to do this type of research, but also as a lens to help them navigate their own experiences and the world. You have this quote that I know a few people have quoted you (laughs) for saying, uh, when I was a grad student, I talked a lot about inequality. When I was an assistant professor, I talked a lot about diversity. When I was an associate professor, I talked a lot about inclusion. I'm so excited to finally become a full professor this week so I can talk a whole lot about white supremacy. Yeah, it's been three years of white supremacy. <laughs> this is the week three years ago today that what, you know, my real focus now is thinking about if we want to get a real, you know, using this particular moment in time when people have been brave protesting again during pandemics to really get at the systemic structural issues We've got to think about the ways that we use language still to promote white supremacy in all forms. Who sounds educated? Who is able to apply to different colleges and universities? Who gets what particular jobs? But unfinished business of the work that segregation and racial oppression does is allows people to internalize those messages so that they are not confident in the true sound of their own voice. So that's what I've really been working on is really thinking about the externalized structural discrimination and what that does to the Black psyche, the Black linguistic imagination, right? How do we think we're supposed to sound and why? And I think if we really want to change things, we've got to look at both sides of that at the same time. Like we don't want a whole nother generation of Black 
students and people to be ashamed of how they communicate and not even know that it's an amazing object of study, primarily because it's mostly studied in elite institutions that they don't attend. Mm. <laughs> right. So there's this weird thing in linguistics is that it's mostly at elite institutions, not at places where Black people actually go to college in larger numbers. Say that again. What's at the what's at the elite institutions? Linguistics is taught primarily oh. at more elite, more higher resourced institutions. Oh. So you get this weird situation where white people will be like, oh, I know about African-American English and I know about code switching like in more elite circles. But black people tend to go to community colleges, two-year colleges, regional universities, historically black colleges, universities where there are far fewer linguists and far fewer opportunities to learn this information at all just because of the history of structuralized racism and the history of like what was taught basically at different places. So what are you doing about all of this? Because I know you're doing a lot. The way that I think right now is the answer is partnerships between linguistics departments and programs and then universities that might not be able to completely fund like having a whole linguist there, but having students work together work online. We were working and doing this online model before the pandemic. Yeah. And now everyone's online. So every university could be partnering in, in your online space to both teach students, um, but also to share information with educators, especially Black scholars who lo- would love to learn more about this and have a conversation about how does our information about African-American language and culture really practically and truly relate to speech and hearing, education, communication, Journalism, broadcasting, all these things that we know are strengths, particularly at historically black colleges and universities, hmm. so that we can learn from each other yeah. about, you know, how, how, can, how can we really do this um, in a way that makes sense, but is really just, that like, goes beyond just code switching models into the real integration of the black voice, black sound, black communication into our, our daily lives. And then... On an individual level for white listeners to start to notice the ways that we accidentally, you know, when we're doing anti-racism work, to look at linguistics as well, to look at how we hear people when we accidentally, you know, make either judgments or just, you know, have internal biases that we haven't excavated. I think it's important to really think about how we make those judgments. But I think the one that you can really immediately do is think about the rationales, the reasoning that you're giving for excluding different people from situations. And those are personal situations. Like if people feel like intimidated or how do you decide if someone's friendly? How do you decide if someone um, is kind of worthy of being your friend all the way through the ideas you give about why a piece of writing or a piece of communication is either interesting to you, worth your time to read, or worthy of, if you're in a hiring position, able to hire someone, like what are the rationales why you pick a particular candidate or not? But I do think it starts on the individual level. Um, If we're serious at all about kind of thinking about real repair, racial repair, we've got to really examine how we're talking to each other in real space and also right now in virtual space. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking you you mentioned in one of your YouTube videos hiring admissions and this great phrase gatekeeping ideals. But also as you say it comes down to who gets interrupted. It does. I think, you know, the bigger ones are these, you know, admissions and hiring, but I think the way that we've kind of developed those criteria are through our interpersonal relationships. Who would, who do, who do we feel like we trust 
when someone's speaking or interacting? Who do we, you know, the ways that we think about who would you like to, who would you feel comfortable being your neighbor and why, right? We've got to really start looking at the linguistic aspects of how those judgments form just as much as these larger ones, because the reality is most people out there are not necessarily hiring or admitting people, right? That's a small group, but the larger societal decisions about how these things happen, we all have a stake in that. And so why I like to focus on that somewhat is so that no one's left off the hook Mm -hmm. and like what they can do. Well, and actually the metaphor for admitting, like that idea of like who you're letting in, you're right, that's all of us. Could be personal and interpersonal, yeah. And also like, I wanna add into this because I do some work for uh, women who are running for office for the first time. Also like what our models are of who a leader is and looks like and can sound like. What's so ironic about that is that there's really great research to show that if you are African-American and you are trying to break into especially white kind of judgment circles of any type as a teacher, as a teacher, as a colleague, as a, you know, a, a, a leader, a politician, your verbal skills are over criticized versus what we do for white candidates in that same position, right? So classic paper um, out of Vanderbilt, Ebony Gee and her team really look at this from the sense of like, black people must sound educated, but we must still be performers. <laughs> and mm. people are really hypercritical. Whereas you will look in any industry, not just politicians, but white men don't necessarily have to have that same verbal repartee, meaning the expectation is not that they command the room and be able to organize it basically as a function of their being, <laughs> right? So if you think about these linguistic ideals, you know, other linguists have really talked about how there's not really room for quiet Black people or more nerdy Black people or just ones who don't necessarily have the same level of Black elocution or rhetorical styles. It's not to say that those aren't valued in the Black community, but what is also to say that those are the ones that white people respond to that make them more comfortable or make people have this sense of, oh, well, this person's acceptable because they seem to be like super intelligent. Right, right. <laughs> Right. I actually, it makes me think about this question that um, people who've been listening to the podcast for a while might have noticed, uh, and I haven't underlined it, but I've noticed it myself, that when I ask my guests, regardless of what my guests' own, you know, identity is to bring in somebody for this third act for where, where we're about to get to with, um, with uh, somebody whose voice you admire, a serious majority have been Black women. It's the expectation. From Michelle Obama to Oprah to Maya Angelou to Alicia Garza to Alicia Keys, I guess I'm wondering if you have a if you have yeah, yeah a response a to, to that because I have a lot to say about that. Yeah, please. Yes. <laughs> okay, so there's the good aspect of it. The good aspect is that Black women value verbal. The what I think about in terms of internal Black society, we value the verbal arts. <laughs> Using your language, using your communication to navigate a very um, unwelcoming world externally, but then using language to nurture community and sense of identity and sense of purpose within the Black female groups, right? So it's taking something that really has, a, it's like a, it's amazing, wonderful thing that I was trained and learned and, you know, from an early age, but really being able to also see what something that is so good and invaluable as like a double-edged sword, <laughs> Right. And I think that's where the linguistics meets the performance kind of thinking about this. 
such that those ideals um, can also be relabeled or reinterpreted or reseen through larger white society who have looked to Black people for both comfort and caregiving roles traditionally, right? The tradition of the Southern Black mammy. The mammy, yep. And, yep, and entertainment, right? So this is the whole thing of, you know, why there's prominent actors and prominent singers that, you know, Black people are proud of. But then we also look at how white people are interpreting the same music or the same actor and seeing a very different or having a very different interpretation of like, not as empowerment, but as consumption of entertainment Mm. that goes back to the history of minstrelsy. So I think all Black people in the public eye have really had to think about how they are walking that line (laughs) and how they are kind of interpreted across groups, but within groups. And I feel like Dave Chappelle, more than anyone, has really talked about that same sense of being, look, I am, he is Black from D.C., totally valued within the community, but started to get a lens of like, he wasn't, how he was portraying his art was not how other people were seeing the art, right? So I think that's, it's a good thing and a bad bad thing because it's not really solvable without a a lot of distinct discussions. So people like Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, I think they really, you know, they walk that line too, just in terms of that interpretation. Beyonce, I was saying there, but they they all give us a sense of hope, right? A sense of something that could be for more people. Lizzo too. Lizzo Lizzo was brought in as well recently. Yes, exactly. Lizzo definitely is in that same category right now where there's like both sides, like you can agree. So like, let's agree. And then those people really, really get like, Lifted up, which is great by me. I'm like, I'm all for it. But I just think it's interesting in the comp- the complex nature of how that's happened. There's this amazing Nell Painter quote yes. that you recently threw out yep. <laughs> uh, in your in your YouTube video that said um, that that quotes her as saying, "What we can see depends heavily on what our culture has trained us to look for." You got it, and that's why you know you can see the same thing and have totally different interpretations. And as Black women, we have to always be in conscious of double vision, like how we're being seen and heard in different ways. But the key work that I think we have to do if we really want things to change in this movement is to help people understand that on an interpersonal level as we change structure and policy. Because as we see, the United States tends to swing back and forth between political leadership every eight years. (laughs) Between very, hopefully four. You know, hopefully four. Straight, hopefully four. <laughs> we hope. um. <laughs> but what, what we've never done is get at a larger sense, like the first civil rights movement in the 60s really empowered Black people, right, to have hope that it could get better. For white people, it was like a lens in. But the next wave, if we want this to be serious, we have to do the humanization on a more interpersonal level as we now actually live in in closer proximity and can do that work. So it's not a critique of what happened in the past. That was what needed to happen. What I'm saying now is we have to put in the next level of work. We can't just be kind of slightly interacting with each other, with each other in the workplace and in jobs and have a real expectation that like policy is real, but policy comes from people's ideas and ideals. And it comes from people. Decide to be in, yeah, in power. And so to do one without the other, it's just going to leave, like, we're going to kind of be in the same place. And I think that's why everyone's so confused. It's like, how are we in this place? I was like, well, individuals have to decide to do that work. And that's not what happened. (laughs) Individuals didn't do that work. We just hoped that the policies would give enough economic stability that we could overlook it. 
And I just don't think it works that way. What's really valuable for me in this Nell Painter quote is there's two things going on. What we can see depends heavily on what our culture has trained us to look for, means we've got to continually disrupt that. Yes, that's exactly it. And... I realized as I was thinking this over, the other part of it is what our culture has trained us to look for. Some of us are culture makers. You got it. All of us are culture makers if we think about social media. That's what's so exciting right now is our ability to be those culture makers in a way that is publicly consumable without peer review or edits. (laughs) So it's really interesting to see who people listen to and why. Hmm. Yeah, and what each of our responsibility is to, you know, bend the culture towards justice. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and find out who you brought in for us to listen to. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks. Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Okay, we are back with Dr. Ann Charity Hudley. And we were talking during a short break, and I I wanted to bring the conversation here because you mentioned that the other side of the celebration of Black women speakers is a more complicated one when it comes to Black men. Yes. I think as soon as you have the Black male voice producing their own content, so when it's not an actor, right? People Mm. like the voices of people like James Earl Jones, Morgan Freeman in particular, Samuel Jackson— But most of the time, they're listening to them and they're acting roles. But what Black men have to say about U.S. society is much more realistic and much more threatening to a general white ideal for many people. And then that that wouldn't necessarily be their number one choice. Obviously, President Obama is a broker of an exception and a broker of that. But I think he, at all times, was always thinking about this idea of how he's being viewed, how he's navigating as a Black man, but also as a multiracial individual, someone who did not grow up, uh, you know, in a solidly Black kind of community in that traditional way that a lot of those other figures did, right? So that's a very different kind of performance style and quality. Whereas the women, Black women have always been those who brokered with whiteness, 
both for jobs historically before, you know, Black men were in any kind of real capacities able to work in white environments. Black women went into work as housekeepers or maids, as carers of children. Um, And so we're always really conscious of this history. As computers of NASA. Exactly. Well, they're they're not in in a contact role. I'm talking about the first contact roles where they are talking to white people. I think Black women learned how to do a linguistic style that is at the same time authoritative and definitive and maintains their dignity and their humanity, but also had to broker these economic and social realities, right? They do it for their children in schools. And I think now, obviously, everyone's doing it um, in terms of Black community and proximity to whiteness. But at the same time, how do you do this in a way where you don't you don't like lose your own self and you have your own community practices. And I think people like Michelle and Obama and Oprah are masters at doing it where it's understandable to all groups and makes people have a sense of hope and dignity. But I do still think there are people out there who are kind of consuming them in the historical tradition of how Black women have been consumed for entertainment or even for hope, right? To make yourself feel better <laughs> about yourself. Like, oh, there's this one Black woman I like, right? We always think about this notion of being someone's one Black friend. Yeah, the tokenism. And so it'll be interesting going forward, where it's, whereas it's not just people who have traditionally identified as women in these roles, who will those voices be in the next generation, I think will be really telling of if there's real change in this area or not. Mm. So if you ask non you know, someone, a Black person saying their own words, mostly, and that's why I picked today, I picked Martin Luther King, because that's still mostly who people will say is my argument, outside of Oprah, Obama, and Beyonce. And I think there are lots of local heroes, and our job is to, like, amplify those voices and think about the linguistic and rhetorical traditions that they come from and how people are breaking new ground as well. I'm going to actually link, because you said that I'm going to link to Killer Mike. Also, that that yes. speech he gave. Killer Mike is an interesting example. The speech was amazing. And then I went to go watch Killer Mike's show on Netflix, and it was full of, like, strip clubs in Atlanta. <laughs> so already, <laughs> Killer Mike had gone from the one speech to, like, a whole other persona. Now, that's going to call into question all kinds of people's ideas, respectability, politics, both in general U.S. society and Black people. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, will Killer Mike, you know, emerge as the voice of a generation or is there other stuff going on there? Well, also, hopefully he doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> have to be responsible for being a exactly. the voice, you know. But exactly. also, I mean, I wonder, I didn't know that second part, but also yeah. it makes me think about like the code switching part of it. Like, you, you know, know your room. That's you know? exactly what I was interested. I was like, okay, this is really different than the, the speech, right? So. <laughs> um, okay, well, so thank you so much for for setting us up with the um, with your Martin Luther King bit that you've asked us to play. It, you know, we're only legally allowed to play thirty seconds, and unfortunately, his amazing you know yeah. um, section that you referenced is longer than that. So we're going to see what we can do. But here it is. This is Martin Luther King's final address before he was assassinated. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. Yeah. 
Thank you for bringing this piece in. Well, I think it's particularly relevant right now with the pandemic and the reality of the immediacy of both the need for hope, but also of the fragility of life. I mean, many communities are being devastated, um, especially Black communities, Latinx communities, but everybody um, that I mostly know has lost one or more people (laughs) um, from coronavirus. It just depends on where you live in the country, but it's spreading. And I think what we learned from this moment in particular is how do you use a voice, the sound of the voice and the what the words mean to not just inspire hope, but almost force hope into situations where it's hard to find some. Can you talk more specifically as a linguist about yes. when, when you say that that his that his language is a language of hope? Can yes. you point us to what you mean? So there's two things. I think as a linguist for me, the multiple skills that Martin Luther King had but one that really resounds to me in this moment is using a Black linguistic tradition of compelling, using a voice to compel. So there's a couple of things. It's the way that the, the rhythm goes for the voice. But it's also, if you notice, there's a growl that happens at the bottom of it that to me, and I think for any others, cues a sense of urgency that is not just, oh, let's hope and let's think that things get better but it is your job in this moment to be a part of this. And you have a responsibility <laughs> that I think, again, in taking the painter model, if you've been trained to hear that, you know that that speech is also a call to action and a call to immediate action. And that's done as a cue, mostly in that speech to other Black people in a very linguistic way. The other aspect of that is um, using a rhetorical style that indicates the ritual of the Black church experience, right? So I'm gonna use something that's familiar and real and in many ways predictable to now take you into new territory and new ground. Um, So you have to do that to me on the linguistic level, but then that also has to be on that emotional level from the way that the voice sounds. That's such a gorgeous closing from what you talked about up top with uh, standardized English coming from the churches. Yes. And here is this other model that's coming from Black churches. Mm -hmm. And when we hear this kind of litany, this kind of list building that grows, where the energy grows and grows and the momentum, you know, gets gets ridden and the audience feels it and grows with you. Yes. That is from that tradition. And if you watch the speech at the end of it, the momentum had grown so much that he actually jumped off the stage into the arms of, you know, some of his colleagues, right? So this is a, a call to action that is a physical call to action. Because in that moment, and then those religious experiences, it's never just about the sound. It's about the movement of your whole body. Um, And so it's like forcing you forward. It felt like a full body mic drop. Yes, exactly. Before that was a thing, he's like, I will do it with, I mean, everybody has to watch that. It's it's just a four minute clip. And at the end, Yeah. yeah. And I think that's kind of what, you know, many of us right now are paralyzed, right? We're kind of like, what do we do? Can we go outside? You don't know even what you can do in a day. And then people are brave and they compel themselves through that fear into protests that just grow and that keep going in physical space in cities, but now in people's everyday lives. And so that same momentum, I think, that's embodied in that speech is now palatable in the country. And so the question is, what kind of voices what kind of momentum will keep that going forward? And I think if you are in a moment where you need to think about that, that's a good speech to listen to, <laughs> to help you make a plan. Well, thank you, Anne. This <laughs> thank is you. such a delight. Thank you so much for, for going to all these places with me. 
Good questions. <laughs> yay, yay. And uh, again, for any Californians listening, we are going to link to some info about ACA 5 on the ballot this November, and it needs a yes, 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 yes. Thank you, Anne. This is fun. <laughs> I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> Thank you to Dr. Ann Charity Hudley for joining me. You can find out more about her in the show notes or on our website, permissiontospeakpod.com. I don't know if any of you guys have uh, joined me yet, but I am doing IG Lives every Thursday morning, California time. So join me tomorrow at Permission to Speak Pod on Instagram. It's Q&A style, so send me questions about this episode, about anything that's going on with your voice, anything that doesn't make sense to you that we've been talking about. Uh, I really, really want to hear from you. And in fact, we are going to do a mailbag episode very soon. So uh, I will answer your question on the air. Thanks to Sophie Lichterman and the team at iHeartRadio, my family and cohort, and all of you. We are recording this podcast at various locations around Los Angeles on land that is the historic gathering place for the Tongva Indigenous Tribe, and you can visit usdac.us to learn more about honoring Native land. Permission to Speak is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Vision, executive produced by Catherine Burt Canton and Mark Canton. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks. Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.